Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And folks, we are finally mercifully nearing election day. And on this episode, I'm here to share with you the last of our conversations with candidates for the state house in the 2020 election. Joining the podcast today is Jonathan Wallace, a Democratic candidate for state house in House District 119. This is in Athens, Clark and Oconee counties. Jonathan previously held this seat following a special election victory in 2017, and he's making another bid to return to the legislature. I talked with Jonathan about what he learned running his third campaign in this district and his view of our state's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Just a note for listeners, we did run this interview in our most recent episode where we talked about Joe Biden's climate plan, but I also wanted to excerpt this interview here for you. And one note of disclosure before we get started, Luke Boggs, one of my co-hosts on this show, he is the chief strategist for Jonathan Wallace's campaign. So while we may be a little biased, we will let you, dear listeners, decide. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Jonathan Wallace. All right, joining the podcast is Jonathan Wallace, a Democratic candidate for State House District 119 in athens Clark in Oconee Counties. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Kyle. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you uh, inviting me in. Jonathan, I think longtime listeners might remember you. This is this is not your first run for this seat. But for some of our newer listeners, can you tell them a little bit about your background and what led you to run uh, for State House District 119? Sure. Happy to. Yeah. My story starts in uh, 2017, where I decided to get involved with uh, politics and see how I could make a difference and an impact uh, and the way that opportunity showed up was running for the state house seat in 2017 in a special election. Uh, and I'd never been involved in politics before, was, you know, a software developer, married with three kids and uh, just uh, enjoying our lives. And winning that seat sort of put me on a different path than I ever expected. Um, ran again in 2018 and fell a little bit short. But, you know, the way things shook out here in 2019 uh, made the determination that I wanted to give it a shot again in 2020. Uh, and uh, and here we are running again here for the third time for the seat. Uh, and I, you know, the, the thing that was interesting in 2017 when I ran was that there was a thought in my mind that, you know, if I started in 2017, I would learn what I needed to know to be help somebody be successful in 2020. That was sort of the thing. Like if I figure it out now when when redistricting is on the line, uh, that'll be the chance uh, to make a real big impact. And so that was a like a small seed of an idea a long time ago. And it's sort of interesting to see that plan come together now. For obvious reasons, the pandemic has dominated our politics this year. Nearly 8,000 Georgians have died from the virus, and the state has over 350,000 cases. We've struggled to keep schools open, struggled to keep businesses afloat. And we've been living in this situation going on you know, for eight months now. Can you describe your view of the state's response to the pandemic? Uh, I've been incredibly disappointed. There was a recent article that came out in Atlanta Magazine that talked about the the uh, the organization, the business that was the company that was responsible for uh, just building the dashboard that we use for information to make determinations and that people use to make decisions about uh, their personal safety, their business safety, and sort of how they interpreted the pandemic. So at the state level, I, I think we've had a real uh, poor response. Uh, there's been a, a it's been very confusing 
as to what recommendations people should follow. Uh, there's been a, a large amount of partisanship that's seeped into the response, which I think has really hindered us and moving in the same direction. It's really divided us and moving in the same direction at the same time. And uh, that's led to, you know, a, a just a base level of insecurity, a base level of, of concern about safety that impacts uh, at, impacts people's lives. It impacts, you know, the ability for schools to reopen. It impacts the ability for businesses to to stay afloat, to stay open. Uh, and so, I think our, our state is ultimately highly responsible. The, the the governor's administration is highly responsible for their unwillingness. I think I call it to have the courage to respond in an appropriate way to, to say, hey, this is what we're gonna do. This is how we're gonna do it. And we're gonna be consistent about it. There's been this abdication of leadership where they say, it's not our responsibility. It's a local level decision. Uh, and we see this sort of kicking, you know, punting the football uh, as opposed to, you know, making a go of it and actually trying to make a play and trying to do something that can get us back on our feet quicker. And so, you know, I look at the, the where we're at right now and there's some positives to the fact that we have um, some economic recovery. We saw tax revenues will be a little bit higher than expected, which is great, but there's a cost. As you mentioned, 8,000 folks have passed away uh, and we're seeing that we've plateaued at our, at our infection rates and our death rates. And it seems like things are back on the upswing right now, uh, which is really concerning moving into the winter months. At the beginning of this crisis, the legislature granted expansive emergency authority to Governor Kemp. And since then, it's been Governor Kemp's actions that have largely governed the state's response. So if you were a member of the legislature and your party had controlled the legislature at the time, how would you have liked to see the legislature's response be different? I would like to have us done more to uh, to empower our local communities to make the decisions that they need to. I think the governor making the case that that uh, Athens Clark County was not able to pass the ordinances that they see fit uh, in the community because of the spread in their community. I, I really think that's that's that goes against the idea of local control, which is something I've I supported as a candidate. And I had heard that a lot of Republicans supported, but when the rubber met the road, uh, we saw the, the governor willing to take folks to court to restrict their ability to do that. So from a legislative perspective, uh, we needed to support our businesses and our and our people. So if we can find ways, you know, at the legislative level, at the state level, to provide more support to to uh, local folks that they could so they could stay home so that we could get the contact uh tracing and the testing in place. I think that's what we really needed to do. We needed to have that infrastructure in place that gives us the good information so that we can make the right decisions. We've seen, you know, I don't know how many folks pay attention, but New Zealand has uh, eliminated the virus. They're living under no constraints whatsoever when it comes to how they live their lives whatsoever. I, you know, kids back in school, businesses are open, people going to coffee shops, people can go to concerts if they want because they got on top of it early and they did the things that they need to do early. So as a legislature, throwing some uh, fully funding our, our our Department of Public Health, especially with respect to, uh, you know, this portion of uh, uh, contagious diseases and infectious diseases, we that those funds were cut, I think, back in the last recession in 2008, and they were never restored. So not only did we have um, leadership, which was inconsistent at the state level, we also had a department who was running on fumes and has never been fully supported. So I think that was a mistake at the at the at the uh, at the legislature where we should have been throwing more support behind folks, uh, not not keeping them at the same rate which was already deficient, uh, you know, going on 10 years. 
Moving on from the pandemic, if you're successful in this election, there's a decent chance that you would join a new Democratic majority in the state house. What are one or two things that should be at the top of a governing agenda for a Democratic majority in Atlanta? Yeah, I think for me, the the, the number one is is that's going to be most impactful. I think about what's the things that we can do that's going to impact Georgians immediately. And I think uh, it goes back to Medicaid expansion. Uh, the governor recently uh, got approval for uh, Medicaid uh, uh, waivers, and those waivers are expensive. They cost more than Medicaid expansion would. They cover less people. And when we're talking about an economic recovery, how do we uh, how can we ha- how can we stimulate the growth of businesses? How can we stimulate the growth and the impact on the local communities? And we have a rural healthcare crisis. If we expand Medicaid, that's uh, eight million dollars a day that's coming into Georgia. Uh, that that wouldn't that's currently not and hasn't been since 2014, which works out to be billions of dollars that we've uh, just let you know flow down the stream and, and not taken advantage of. But it's like 50,000 jobs. It's 500,000 Georgians or so that would have access to healthcare and about 50,000 new jobs. That's a significant uh, jump and 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 the employment uh, uh, you know the employment numbers here in the state. Um, you know the second thing would be you know education. I feel strongly that we need to invest in education. Uh, which is 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 uh, something that I had promised to do in 2017, followed through on. Uh, so fully funding our education uh, would be important because I think without that, we're going to see uh, we're going to see furloughs. We're going to see uh, you know reductions in forces in our in our education system. And in some of the rural communities, that's the largest employer in the area. So it'll be de- it'll be even more devastating. And then you know the third thing I think about, and when we're talking about it is. Uh, reapportionment and redistricting. How do we handle making sure that people's voices are heard, that they're not being silenced in a partisan fashion? Uh, I think we've seen across the country that different states have engaged in partisan gerrymandering. And I would like to see us have a process that's transparent, uh, that's fair, and doesn't engage in partisan gerrymandering that silences people's voices irrespective of the side of the aisle, I think it's critical that people are and pulled into the the the, uh, the political process, the the process of uh, electing their voters. And, and I think that's just incredibly important going forward to restore uh, faith and trust in, in our government. And I think the, I think those are the three things I would look at. And that would be the order that I would order them in as well. What's going to ha- people are going to be we're going to be in severe, serious trouble here um, in the next uh, five or six months. I think we'll see the economic impacts of the without, you know, with the, um, the difficulties at the federal level of, of there being support, we're going to see the difficulties. Those things are going to be raining down and we're going to see some some uh, really difficult uh, problems facing local communities with respect to the economic and health impacts in the, over the next year. So another issue that deals with the way people's voices are heard in this state is the administration of our elections. And the first week of early voting in Georgia was reminiscent of the June 9th primary, which was reminiscent of the 2018 election, long lines and technical problems that forced voters to wait, sometimes for hours, to cast their ballots. Is the combined administration of Georgia's elections at the state and county level adequate? And if not, what should George- what should the legislature do to protect people's right to vote? That's a great question. It's been very frustrating. I was not a fan of the current system. I thought it was overpriced for what we needed. I thought we needed to go to hand-marked paper ballots, which would be uh, uh, much more secure uh, from a from a systemic perspective. The the, the chances of somebody of there being technical problems that are widespread. And we saw, it's funny because that's exactly what we saw just a few days before uh, early voting began. We saw a rush rollout of a software update to address uh, some technical issues, uh, some issues with voting that were found with the 
with, uh, with that special Senate election where there's 22 candidates. So this is, this is the concern that I think that we face is that uh, when there's a problem at the software level, it affects everybody and it can be, mag uh, you know, the impact is, is, is huge. Whereas if, if we were using handmarked paper ballots, we would have been able to, you know, each county could have gone and, and they could have reprinted the balance, ballots as necessary. Uh, and and if, if, we catch, if you catch it early, you're not having to reprint them all because not of all of them had been reprinted, uh, had been printed in the first place. So what can we do at the state level? Uh, we've got to make sure that, that folks are able to register vote. That's something I think we've done well, but I think, I think um, when, it, when it comes to our election, uh, you know, there was a ruling that just came out of the 11th circuit that said that we don't have to have updated poll, poll books. Uh, at the the voter location. So when we run into technical problems, at if if a if a county runs into technical pro technical problems at the precinct level, uh, that that they're not going to have updated information. That should be something that to me is is a no brainer. Why is a court number one saying that they don't have to have updated information so that people can you know be verified and ready to vote? Uh, that makes it more difficult. And if somebody's using this to make it really clear, if you have an outdated poll book you're gonna to have to cast a provisional ballot. That puts more responsibility on you to come back and make sure and prove that your vote should count. Uh, so I would, love to, I would love to see us look at that process and whole and make sure that those types of things that are, um, they just, they, it's, it's very confusing to me because they just don't make sense from a, we want to encourage folks to vote. Uh, I, I think the other thing is uh, we've, you know, we do have the ability to do early voting on the Saturday and we had some on Sunday this year. Uh, in, in Athens, Clark County, at least for early voting. Um, but we're still seeing long lines. Why are we still seeing long lines? It's because the counties are shouldering those burdens uh, with requirements to support these machines that are onerous and difficult. So, you know, if, is, it, is it providing more funding to the counties so that they can afford in more populous areas to rent or, 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 or acquire places like uh, Stegman Coliseum or uh, at the... Uh, the um, up in Atlanta where they're getting the sports arenas opened up so they can go in there. Like those things, I've heard great things about the lines there, but do the local communities need more support so they can uh, find those locations? If it's a financial support, we should get them that to make it easier. Uh, we just shouldn't have folks having to stand in long lines to, to vote. They should be able to come in and get in and out in 30 minutes and during a lunch break if they want to do that. I would love to see us make it a state holiday as well, uh, election day, so that folks um, uh, have uh, all every opportunity to go do that. So if there are going to be long lines, that they don't have the pressure to get out of the line soon, uh, you know, leave to rush back to work for some reason and not get a chance to have their voice heard. You spoke out recently on behalf of Mocha Johnson, who's a candidate for the other Athens area house seat. And she had uh, racial slurs hurled at her in a recent candidate forum. It does feel like we're experiencing more instances of open hatred and racism in public spaces during the Trump era. How do we begin to heal the damage done by these open displays of hatred and racism in our politics? And is it enough to just go back to like 2013 or 2014, the calmer years before Trump's politics of division became so prominent? No, it's not enough just to go back there. We have to we have to take the opportunity to move forward and learn and grow with with one another. And I think when when I see that type of stuff, number one, what happened to Mo Mocha was just it's it's there's to be silent on the type of hate that she received is to condone it. We have to stand up and speak out against that type of, of vitriol, that type of hate, 
uh, that lives in people's hearts. And I think the number one thing that I think we can't go back to is accepting that silently. We have to be willing to speak up and speak out against it and, and, and speak to those folks who uh, don't want to speak out and call them out and say, hey, you're not, you know, uh, this is an issue in our community. We can't pretend it's not there. It is, an, it is an issue that we must address. So going back to 2013 is sort of trying to put the, you know, the genie back in the bottle and pretend it doesn't exist when to some degree that hate has existed all along, but without a doubt, the politics of Trump has and condoned and encouraged it and supported it. I mean, he is uh, his his uh, Weasley way of uh, pretending to incite hate without inciting hate, uh, where people go, what? You know, they sort of look at you. He's gaslighting. He's gaslighting. Uh, he's gaslighting physical harm. We have uh, the the statements he's made with respect to Governor Whitmer um, and uh, and uh, up north. And and there were a couple of plots that were recently exposed to uh, to kidnap her and. Uh, that he's not doing his job of being a good leader to push back on that. And we, and what that says to me is that it's each of our individual responsibilities to speak up and speak out against that type of behavior. So when it happens to a candidate uh, that's running uh, in a district adjacent to me and on a form, which I'm attending, uh, it makes it very clear that there's a lot of work left to be done to convey to people uh, where, where this is happening. So how do we unify? How do we, how do we heal through that? It comes back to empathy. We have to have leaders that express empathy. So it's not just when we call out hate, it's not just calling out the hate uh, and, and, and saying that it's unacceptable. It's also welcoming the opportunity to, to help those people who are living in that hate to grow and learn. Why do they feel that fear? Because that's where I think hate comes from. It comes from a place of fear and anxiety. How can we make sure those folk, we address that uh, and I'm not saying that we uh, that we uh, you know uh, bend all of our conversations to trying to help those folks ho uh, heal and not address the inequities that exist in our society. What I am saying though is we have to have that space for them to grow. We have to have, we have to have express grace for them to grow and and to uh, find a path out of that hate. And that doesn't come with a closed heart. We have to have our hearts open, and that's a difficult thing to do. Uh, but that's where the courage comes into play. That's where as, as leaders, we have to be willing to have those conversations. As a leader, I have to be willing to say, there's a reason that, that this hate exists in our community. Uh, some of it comes from fear and anxiety. Some of it comes from tradition and, and convention. And so let's see how we can grow and learn with one another, whether, maybe, whether that's attending maybe a church that you don't normally attend to celebrate and worship in a different way, whether that's going to community events um, in a different part of your community. Maybe it's a mile in a different direction than you normally drive uh, to meet with different folks and see what their concerns are. It's really about, I think, building those stronger bonds back across neighborhoods, uh, family, you know, family and friends. And when we do that, we ultimately, I think, make better decisions. We have more trust. Uh, and we're also more resilient to the challenges that we'll face, like when something like a pandemic starts. You mentioned in your intro that you've held the seat before, and, and this is your third campaign in, in District 119. What's one thing that you've learned about your community across these multiple runs for office in Athens, Clark, and Oconee counties? I've learned how many people are in there that how many people are incredibly involved and care strongly about making a better community, and that is uplifting. Um, I, I say to folks that one of the number one blessings that I've received is to meet so many amazing people. And, and if I could make one pitch to folks as to why you should get involved in your community in a stronger way, whether it's politics or some civic organization, it's because you meet the folks whose hearts are driven by, uh, by service, by making a better world, 
Um, it, it's the, the faith that you see expressed in the people who are willing to do this work and the energy and drive and discipline that they express in doing the work, whether it's feeding, helping feed folks who are in uh, food pr precarious positions, whether it's in addressing the issues of homelessness, whether it's in advocating for policies at the state level, like uh, fully funding education and expanding Medicaid, uh, those types of folks who are doing that work are uplifting and inspiring. Uh, and so that, I think that's the thing I took away. It was something that was not on my, um, in my, you know, uh, in my field of vision before I started running. I saw it to some degree in my church, but to see it across multiple different faiths, to see it across, you know, even folks who are uh, atheists or agnostics willing to do the same work, all of those actions that they take are expressions of faith. And they are invigorating and they and they help bolster my own faith, uh, whether it comes to religion or the faith in democracy, I think, which is at, as being attacked uh, in many ways uh, by our current political circumstances. Uh, it's very uplifting. So that's my, my that's my pitch to folks. And the thing that I learned and have learned and the thing that's going to sustain me to keep doing this work uh, one way or the other come November 4th. So let's close here by hearing the pitch for you. We're in crunch time here. You and I are talking on Wednesday morning and election day is in six days for the voters in house district 119. What's the biggest difference between you and your opponent there? <laughs> I think there's a ton of differences. Uh, the biggest difference is I bring something that's more than a cardboard cutout to, to the seat. I bring a pragmatism, a discipline and a, uh, the ability to exercise discretion and make good decisions up there. It's not straightforward when you get to the state house and you're working with 180 other folks in your chamber to get something done. You have to have, uh, you have to have a wide area of knowledge. You have to have a wide array of relationships with other folks. Uh, but the other, you know, uh, there's the the policy positions where I'm very different, but it's also my experience in my, my personal life. I think that really drives home the difference. I've, uh, worked in software for the last 20 years. And specifically, I've worked in helping build businesses. So I'm not just working for another company. I've built software for companies that have been sold for millions of dollars. I've built software that's being used at, uh, you know, Fortune 50 companies uh, for them to make uh, millions more dollars. And I've seen what it takes to, for businesses to be successful. But that's all been done in an environment where I was also giving my time to a nonprofit to grow uh education for pe people to learn software development skills, whether adults or children, after school programs for kids, uh, 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 ed educational opportunities for adults to, to learn software. So I've seen what it takes to help grow businesses and grow people. And when I step into that role at the state house, that's the perspective I bring. And I also have an expertise in that area, which is unique in the state house. I don't think there's anybody with my qualifications and technology that's uh, been in the state house since I've been in there. Uh, and bringing those skills back, I think, is incredibly important as we move forward. And we look to say, how do we recover from the economic malaise that has been brought about because of the pandemic? And uh, that's something that my opponent doesn't have. Uh, he's he's a real estate developer. And that's not generating new jobs. That's benefiting off of the growth that comes to a community versus the actual job creators. And so when we're looking at that, I'm bringing my heart to it uh, from an empathic perspective, a people first perspective. But I also know exactly what it takes to help uh, businesses succeed. So I really feel like I bring the whole package um, uh, and have a, a strong uh um, uh, you know, strong understanding of multiple topics beyond just that, that allow me to, to be the best representative for District 119. Well, Jonathan, if people want to learn more about your campaign in District 119, how can they do that? The easiest place is to go to wallace419.com. That's uh, uh, 
uh, Wallace FOR and then the numerals 119.com. Uh, got some platform policy positions. They can also reach out to me directly via cell 706-363-0863. You've got, uh, you can text me or call me at that number. Um, and happy to answer any questions that folks may have to earn their support uh, or work with folks on addressing some issues here in the community across the state going forward. Jonathan Wallace is a Democratic candidate for House District 119 that is in the athens Clark and Oconee County areas. Jonathan, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Appreciate it very much. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.